Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning again. My name is Matt. For those of you who I haven't met, we are continuing in our series through the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 26, verse 36, and we'll pick up there in a moment. We are nearing the end of the book of Matthew, which is a a first century account of the life of Jesus culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection, which after two years of studying the book of Matthew, we are slowly approaching this morning. As we enter the final narrative surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection, we step into a story that is full of tension and drama. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that the conflict between Jesus and the religious elite has been escalating over time. And today it comes to a head. And really the tension between Jesus and the religious elite sits inside an even bigger, more complex tension between Jesus and the religious elite and Rome and the crowds and the disciples. And there's kind of tension in every direction between all of those dynamics. If you were uh, here with us last week, you'll remember that uh, Jerry Sitzer was here and he highlighted uh, where some of the disciples were finding themselves within this tension that's building. And specifically, he highlighted Judas and Peter, uh, but really all of the disciples, including Judas, Judas and Peter, sort of reject and betray Jesus in their own way and leave him to his fate. Uh, Today, we are going to examine uh, Jesus' final moments with his disciples before being arrested and put on trial. And I think there's something profound within the narrative uh, that I want us uh, to notice. So we are um, picking up in Matthew 26, verse 36, and uh, I've asked Coulter to read the passage for us this morning uh, and, and pray. We are picking up, this is right after Jesus has had what we call the Last Supper, his last meal uh, with the disciples. Okay, guys, we're going to pick up in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to him, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? 
Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a single with them, a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, see Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put out at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. If you, you have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now, if you would please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you uh, that we just get to gather together today um, and just fellowship with one another, Lord. I pray that you would just speak to us um, through the words that Matt is gonna bring, um, that, that your spirit would just tell us the things that we need to hear, Lord, um, and that we would just be blessed by your presence. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, Coulter. <clears throat> this morning's narrative is full of tension and heartache. But what I want us to do this morning is kind of run briefly back through uh, the narrative text that Coulter just read uh, and, and try and get a grasp on what it was that Jesus was going through in these moments. And, and then at the end, I kind of want us to, to camp out on how Jesus is going about it, how he's dealing with his own impending death. From the beginning, of Jesus' ministry, he knows what he has to do. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he knows how it's going to end. Jesus has come to give his life on our behalf, to die on the cross for our freedom. 
He's talked about it with his disciples. He's explained it in various contexts, time and time again. He knows what's coming. And if the disciples have been paying attention, then they know what's coming too. But it doesn't change the raw reality of how difficult it is going to be. Crucifixion was the worst way to die. It involved uh, being tortured and hung up for the world to see, humiliated, helpless, shamed, and left to die of asphyxiation and exposure. To make matters worse, in order, in order to uh, atone for or cancel out our sin, Jesus would bear within himself that sin. And by many accounts, that process of, of sin-bearing actually begins right here in the Garden of Gethsemane, adding to the tension and anguish of the moment. But in either case, Jesus is feeling the full weight of what he's up against. And as his humiliation and torture and death are looming on the horizon, he feels the weight of it in his soul. Then he takes the disciples out to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a small garden not far from the temple. And we're told in, in the scriptures that Jesus and the disciples would go there often to pray and be refreshed. But this occasion is unlike any other. We're told that as they enter the garden, uh, Jesus, in his agony, in his hour of need, says this. He says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Meaning there, there is so much anguish and sorrow and sadness and grief within me that I feel as if I could die under the weight of it. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Next slide. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he came back again and found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Either from the agony of sin laid upon his soul or, or, or the anguish of the impending torture, humiliation, and death, or perhaps in light of both, Jesus falls to his knees and he prays. And, and as he's wrestling with this heavy burden, 
Judas, one of his own disciples, one of the people he should have been able to trust the most, comes into the garden and betrays him into the hands of the high priest. And from there, he's led to a secluded location. And what follows is a sham of a trial in in which false witnesses are brought in the middle of the night to a discreet location so that the religious elite might find anything they can that would be an excuse to put Jesus to death. But the witnesses aren't, aren't making sense. Their testimony isn't lining up. And to their complete astonishment, Jesus is not saying anything at all. And so eventually the high priest says, I charge you under oath by the living God, which was a big deal in their context. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus' response is classic. You have said so, he says. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Which is a very Jewish way of saying, yes, I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And while you sit here and pretend to judge me, I will actually be the one who judges you and the rest of humanity when I return at the end of the age. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And the others answer, He is worthy of death. Then they spit in his face and struck them with their fists. Others slapped them and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? The religious elite have heard all they need to hear. And their next task will be to get the Romans on board in handing out the death sentence. And we'll examine that next week. But for now, there are two things that I want us to notice. And the first is what Jesus is doing on our behalf. He has come to die out of love for us in our place so that we might be free. And and the process for him of, of taking on our sin and carrying it to the cross has begun right here in the garden. It's in full swing. And he's feeling the full weight of what he's come to do. And and as he begins to carry that weight, He's brought into a false trial, condemned or declared guilty by the religious elite. That's what Jesus is doing. But there's something else that I want us to notice this morning. And, And it's not simply what Jesus is doing on our behalf, as amazing as that is. But I also want us to notice how Jesus is doing it how he's going about bearing this burden 
and heading toward the cross. Because many of us have this image of Jesus in our minds in, in which he's kind of like Superman, right? Like he's, I mean, he's human in a sense, but in our minds, he's mostly God. And so there's not much weakness. There's, there's not much emotion. There's not a ton of struggle. There's not much brokenness. He's, he's like Superman. The, the bullets just kind of bounce off. And if you're reading the gospel accounts closely, I hope you recognize that that's not the case. Jesus was fully human as well as being fully God. And so as he goes through these experiences, he experiences them as a human being. And and when you read about the account of his life, what you see is the full range of human emotion in all of their deep and and vast colorful array. And, And what that means is that when the sin of the world is laid upon him, And and as he's heading to the cross, he feels it. He experiences it. All of it. There's no exoskeleton. There's no divine pain pills. Jesus experiences this moment as any human being would. And because of that, I find his response to this whole episode fascinating. God lays the sin of the world upon him as their joint will and plan. Torture, humiliation, and death are looming ever closer. And what does Jesus say? Don't worry, guys. I've got this one. Dun, 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 dun. (laughs) Cape flapping in the breeze. No. He says, Father, I know we've been working toward this. My whole life has led up to this moment. I know that this is the reason that I've come. But if there is any other way I'll take that please father right now take this from me I don't desire it I don't I don't want it it has brought me to my knees please is there any other way Jesus is God. But as a human being, he also wrestles with God. In the midst of the turmoil, in in, in the face of fear and anguish and certain death, he wrestles. And I think the part we sometimes miss is that Jesus was sinless. He he was without sin. He was perfect. And yet, in these difficult circumstances, 
he wrestles with God. God, please, is there any other way? Take this cup from me. He asks God to change his circumstances, and then ultimately he places faith in God in the midst of his circumstances. And so what I want us to do for just a few minutes is sort of camp out on, on what it looks like for us to do the same. What does it look like for us to wrestle with God in the midst of our circumstances and to practice the heart posture of Jesus in this moment? And so I've uh, asked Annie and Ashton uh, to come up, and you guys can come forward now and um, just share a bit out of their experiences. Uh, for those who are curious, this is uh, the River's Edge staff uh, right here. And um, Ashton has been uh, interning with us uh, through a program at Whitworth for the last couple months. You have like a week left yeah. in your internship, which makes us very sad. Um, and Annie, you uh, came on staff full-time as our worship director a month, about a month and a half ago. Uh, and so this is kind of the staff, and our job is to serve and equip you guys, and we do that under kind of a, a team of, of elders, uh, but it's our joy to do that. And we kind of got to have a conversation around the text earlier in the week, and I wanted us to kind of continue that conversation uh, as a community. And so uh, we'll start with this, just kind of a simple question to frame the next couple of minutes, uh, and, that's, and that's this question. Uh, what does it look like for us to wrestle with God the way that Jesus did in the garden? How do we as followers of Jesus emulate that same heart posture in similar circumstances? Um, and so, Ashton, maybe if you want to start for us, and then we'll go from there. Uh, good morning. Um, a little bit of background um, for me, and I guess my story. Um, I am a PK, a pastor's kid. Uh, I grew up going to church. Uh, my dad was the pastor of two very small churches. With like, It was a good Sunday when there were 20 people there. <laughs> Um, but, uh, in sixth grade, um, I think it was 2010, that sounds right, um, my dad was diagnosed with ALS, um, or Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, if you were at Gleason Fest this weekend, um, that is, ALS is the disease that Gleason Fest, uh, supports. Um, all the proceeds from Gleason Fest go towards, like, helping families, um, who have people with ALS um, get technological support um, and that sort of thing. Um, so if you want to know more about ALS or whatever, come find me after the gathering or you can look online. There's a lot of really awesome information. Um, they haven't found a cause or cure for the disease yet, so it's a pretty hopeless diagnosis. Um, yeah, so my dad was diagnosed and during those years, this passage became really important to my family um, and to my dad. Um, this, yeah, Jesus, this really sucks. Like watching my dad pass away and his body uh, just becomes so weak. And this sucks. 
and I really hate this and I I don't want to do it like I don't want to walk through the next three years of watching my dad slowly walk into death but my parents were quick to point me towards this verse and to say Ashton it's not your will um, and so this kind of became my heart posture of okay Jesus if you can take on the cross and you can wrestle with God in this and rest in the promise of God's faithfulness and goodness, then I can too. Um, yeah, and I think in this time, I also watched my dad really wrestle with um, having to leave us and facing kind of this feeling of an uncompleted life and um, it was really powerful to watch him kind of go through days of being really angry with God. Um, and I think watching him kind of wrestle with a lot of this, um, I didn't realize it at the time, but modeled for me really that um, it's okay to wrestle with God in this and to say like, Jesus, I don't like this mm-hmm. and I don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, but to ultimately surrender in that and say, but Jesus, I trust you. Um, so fast forward a few years, uh, my father passed away my freshman year of high school. Um, and for me, the next year is a whole blur. I don't remember much of it at all. Um, and then the two years following that, I didn't really turn away from faith or, um, I don't know, it just, it wasn't as central in my life. I. There's, there wasn't a need or there wasn't a need to be as reliant on the Lord as there was when uh, my dad was sick and it was kind of a day in and day out kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I kind of went on, finished high school in a meh kind of state with my faith. Um, and then the summer after high school, I went to work at a church camp and uh, figured out that I had a lot of unresolved stuff with God surrounding my dad. Um, And so that summer I entered into a season of wrestling with God and talking with people about what had happened and, you know, praying and being angry with God and yelling at God and asking, why? Like, why did you take my dad away? How can you be a good father when you've taken mine from me? Uh, I just really wrestled with that and wrestled with the reality that my dad was gone and I was still angry. Um, And through that summer, God showed up in a really big way. He never really answered any of my questions directly, (laughs) as much as I would have enjoyed that. Um, But he was so present and just kind of came alongside me in multiple ways and just said, Ashton, I'm here and I see you and I see your hurt, and I see that you're angry, and I love you, and you can trust me. Um, So I kind of ended up in this place of, this still really hurts, and I really don't like this still, (laughs) but um, I'm starting to see the ways that God is using this for good. Um, 
And through this, I'm seeing his faithfulness and his goodness. And after that summer, I kind of entered into a space of just surrender into um, trust in Jesus' faithfulness and goodness. And that's not to tie a bow around it or to say, like, I'm all good now. Like, I still, like, have a lot to work through with all of this and a lot of pain to sort through. Um, But kind of... I'm in this spot now of Jesus, your will be done, and I trust that, and I trust that you're going to work all things for my good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love, Ashton, in your story that there's kind of two wrestlings, right? There's like this, like, I'm, we're all as a family desperately reliant <coughs> on God to get us through what we're going through. And we're wrestling with God in the moment and saying, God, would you take this cup from me? Like, please, like, let this pass. And we know you have the power to do it, and yet we're experiencing it. And that's sort of the first wrestling. And then you have your dad passing and your own mourning and processing. And then you kind of had to go back and wrestle again and say, like, okay, God, it's pretty clear we're not done yet, you know? Like, there's this whole other type of wrestling that I now have to do. Um, And and I think that um, it's beautiful that you found the freedom to do both of those things rather than just either one I think can be a cause for like bitterness rejection I don't get it I'm blaming God so I'm gone sort of a thing and yet I think God creates these spaces creates these gardens of Gethsemane and says come on like come and wrestle with me Um, and and I'm not necessarily going to answer your questions but we're going to get to a beautiful place because you were willing to wrestle and you're willing to sit in it with me Uh, Annie what what about you Thanks, Ashton. Um, So this morning, I want to share a bit about my experience with autoimmune disease. Um, I'm careful with my language as I describe my experience because it's just that. It's an experience. Um, This is not something that I ever want to identify with or place my identity in. I think that happens a lot in culture. Um, Like, I have anxiety. I have depression. but I don't want to call it mine. Um, It was never something that I asked for or wanted, and rather it's a disease that I myself experience. Um, This language is important as I navigate what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of disease, and I'll sort of flesh that out as I go. So when I was in fifth grade, I became super sick. Um, My first realization of this was when each student in my grade was actually weighed at the nurse's office. Um, Why we did this, I have no idea. (laughs) Um, Maybe it's a private school thing, I don't know. Um, But once I got my number, my friends and I, classic middle school, started to compare. And I was about 20 pounds lighter than everyone else, um, 63 total pounds as a fifth grader. And I remember my volleyball coach telling me to put some meat on those bones or to eat a hamburger or to just bulk up um, because my arms are so small. And as time went on, I became more of a homebody and more irritable and just had stomach issues all the time. Um, My mom and I began to look for answers and I was eventually diagnosed with celiac disease, uh, which is an autoimmune disease that causes my body to attack itself when I eat gluten. Um, My small intestine becomes damaged and it takes months to heal whenever I eat gluten. Um, So this is something I have been told I will deal with for the rest of my life, but with a gluten-free diet, I can maintain pretty much overall wellness, which is a huge blessing. Um, I actually gained 30 pounds within the first year of being diagnosed, which is crazy. Um, 
but sadly I often can still get sick um, through accidentally consuming gluten going out to eat you just never know um, so the question I'm often faced with is okay where do I go from here um, and I often find myself going one of two ways I'm either really angry or like the story of the man at the pool I pick up my mat and I walk Oftentimes, it's actually both, and I'm trying to figure out how to be angry while also picking up my mat and walking. Um, this is the reality of chronic illness. I wish I could tie a bow on it, like Ashton said, and say that the story um, is complete, and say that following Jesus as I experience disease is linear and easy to follow, but it's not. Um, and I often find myself holding anger and the courage to walk equally in my hands. Um, I wrestle with God, questioning his goodness and how he could let his children become sick. I am angry that my Jan term trip was filled with stomach aches while all the other students ate freely. I am angry that I have to be high maintenance at any event involving food. I am angry that Jesus calls us to gather around the table when for me that's a really complicated process. These days are full of anger, wallowing in the grief and the physical pain of being sick. Um, but some days I am courageous enough to get off of my mat and believe in the goodness that God has called me to live into. Despite my experience of disease, God has incredible plans for me and I believe it. And that's whether I carry my mat into those plans or not. I could so easily wallow in my disease, sit on my mat and invite everyone else to grab their friends and grab their mats and sit with me too and just wallow in our disease. Um, and I think our culture tends to do this. but. The reality is that when I, li I lived 11 years sick, but I've been healthy for almost 12. 12 years of, for the most part, full, nourished life. Amidst disease, I try to walk courageously, picking up my mat and walking in faith that one day, whether it's here on earth or heaven's side, God will carry me through and I will be healed. When God told the man at the pool of Bethesda to get up and walk, the man had to have the faith to walk because walking was not something that he could do. And I want to have that kind of faith as I walk through my day-to-day -day life. So this disease is something that I experience and I wish it wasn't there, um, but it's part of my experience. I believe that God could still heal me, but God may never heal me. So on the days that I feel sick, I ask him for my daily bread, no pun intended. Um, and I ask him for healing for today. That's often, if I get a stomachache, I'm like, God, just healing for today. I just need healing for today. Um, and sometimes these days end in anger and no healing, but other times they end in me picking up my mat in faith that God will bring me through my circumstances because I know that he will. And one day when I'm heaven side, my body's gonna be fully healed and fully alive and in its perfect form. And I'm super excited. Amen. Awesome. So another example, which for you is ongoing, of not that yours isn't, but I mean just like an active kind of in your face reality of saying, God, would you take this cup from me? Um, and if we know something of God's character and we know something of God's power, then you say, no, I'm actually like Jesus. I, I can go to this place and say, God, I know you do have the power to do this. Um, and, and, and sometimes he does. Like that's the other crazy reality is that 
we have another gal in the church who's in like an almost identical position who was prayed over and just totally and completely healed after like years and years of, of wrestling just like right then and there. And so like we know that God can do it. We know that God loves us dearly and invites us to pray. Uh, and so sometimes the, we, we have this cup in front of us and we say, God, would you take this cup from me just as Jesus did? And sometimes he does. And so when that happens, I think we kind of get how to respond, right? Like we get, oh yeah, we bring that, we share it. It's part of our testimony. It glorifies God. We celebrate as a community. The question that I think the garden poses is what happens when we pray for the cup to be removed and it's not? And, and I think that that is just so woven into the human story and experience that we can't just skip over it and we can't pretend like it doesn't happen because it does. And so I think that's the question that I think Jesus begins to answer for us in the garden. What happens when the cup isn't removed? And so kind of through our conversation earlier in the week and wrestling with this, and this was just kind of a summary of my uh, thoughts. I think we have it on a slide. Um, but in wrestling through all of this, this is where, where I kind of landed through our conversation. Uh, it's, it's this, God um, hates death. It actually is his enemy. He hates death. God hates illness. He hates so much of what we hate. But he doesn't cause all of it. He doesn't fix all of it. And he doesn't apologize for it. I, I'm going to say that again. He he doesn't cause all of it, he doesn't fix all of it, and he doesn't apologize for it. He's just with you, and he died on a cross so that we could experience a future without those things. Is some of that future breaking into the present in bits and pieces? Absolutely it is. It's what we call the in-breaking kingdom of heaven. We get tastes of that future place. But ultimately, it's the future place that is God's decisive word about suffering and struggle and pain and death. And that is his decisive word and promise spoken over a hurting world. And so should we pray for cups to be removed? Absolutely, we should. I mean, wrap your mind around the fact that the cross had to happen. If anything was central to the will of God, it was the cross. And Jesus knew it, and yet he still felt the freedom to pray that prayer. God, if there's any other way, would you take this from me? And so is there freedom to pray for those cups to be removed over the dying father, over the current illness, over whatever it is? Absolutely there is. I, I think we're encouraged to do that, but will the cup always be removed? No. And, and that's what puts us into the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and that's what puts us into this place uh, of wrestling with God. And there's a whole host of reasons, in my understanding, uh, that sometimes cups aren't removed. In Jesus' case, the cross was absolutely central to God's will. I think a lot of what we go through and a lot of the things that you just heard about uh, aren't God's will. And a lot of what we suffer through just isn't the will of God, but God has something to say about it. And, and God works all things perfectly for the, the, the good of those who love him. And, and so in my kind of working through, hey, what was Jesus doing in the garden? What specifically can we emulate 
There's a difference between Jesus suffering the cross and you suffering what you're suffering. For sure, there's some differences there. But what's the same? What can we carry? And so this is kind of just final thoughts, things that I see Jesus doing in the garden uh, that we can emulate. And the first is this. Uh, the first is that we surrender our circumstances to God. And so we're saying, God, here's where I'm at. Honestly and truly, here's where I'm at. Um, if there's any way please could you take this cup from me? As a follower of Jesus, you have complete and total freedom uh, to pray that. I don't like this, You're, like what you were saying, I don't like this, I don't want this, I wish it were not so. I want you to take it, but even if the cup doesn't go away, I, I surrender this to you. I'm placing this in your hands. God, would you do something with it? Would you show up in the midst of the Garden of Gethsemane? Would you use this uh, in a way that maybe I can't even fully see yet? Uh, the second is that we, um, like Jesus, rest in God's presence in the midst of our circumstances. We rest in God's witness. We say, Jesus, uh, if this cup will not pass from me, which is our common human experience, we're saying, hey, I rest and even rejoice in the fact that you are with me. You're with me in the Garden of Gethsemane, in my hour of anguish. You're with me in, in the shadow of the valley of death. And guess what? You know what it feels like to be there. <laughs> you worship a God who knows what it feels like to be in the garden. And that God is with you. That God is in your garden of Gethsemane and he's with you and, and he gets it and, and he knows. He doesn't cause all of it, therefore he doesn't apologize for it, but he's with you, standing right there in, in the midst of the chaos and the struggle. So first, we surrender our circumstances to God. Next, we rest in God's presence. And third, we trust in God to bring us through. We trust in God to bring us through our circumstances, through our life, through death itself, and into the new heavens and the new earth. That's our ultimate hope. That's where everything is pointing. And in fact, we need to allow uh, the, the unfulfilled dreams, the chronic disease that isn't healed, the cups that don't go away, we actually need to allow those to point us forward to that future place where they will go away, uh, that, that future place of fulfillment. And so this place, part of the pain and confusion is thinking that this place is God's ultimate end and goal, that this is where the kingdom's supposed to come in full, and, and it's just not. And so when we carry those cups and say, God, would you take this, and it's still there, we have to allow that to be a sign, a signpost. Just as much, if any is healed, that's a signpost forward to the kingdom of God in the future place where everyone will be healed completely. If any is not healed, that is also a signpost forward to the kingdom of God where we hope and trust and believe and anticipate every single person who's come under Jesus' rule and reign being healed 
in every way. And, and so we look forward. The, the, the cups that don't pass have to point us forward to that future place when everything will be restored and, and brought into a place of peace under the active rule and reign of Jesus. That's our hope. So we look forward to that day. And in the meantime, we wrestle. We're human Jesus was human. He wrestled with God in the midst of his circumstances. And we do it in community, and we do it with honesty, but we wrestle. And, and, and so part of what I want us to walk away with walk, after studying the Garden of Gethsemane is that there's room for all of these different types of wrestling that that's supposed to happen in the community of God, that the perfect and sinless one did that and gives us complete permission to do it as well. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look to you in the garden, we see you fully God and fully human and and fully wrestling with your circumstances. And, and Jesus, as we study this passage, we start with a heart posture of, of wonder, of awe, of gratitude that you took on the sin of the world into your own body. You took it on. And, and therefore, we don't have to. That we don't have to bear that heavy weight. That we don't suffer under the curse of sin and death and hopelessness, but because of what you did in the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross to follow, we're free and we rejoice in that reality. And for some of us in this room, rejoicing is going to be the most natural thing this morning, that we stand in awe of who, you've, of who you are and the burden that you've carried for us. And God, for some of us in this room, uh, rejoicing is not what we most naturally are drawn to do this morning. Because for some of us in this room, some of us in this room are in the Garden of Gethsemane, feeling the anguish, feeling the pain, wondering where you are in the midst of that pain. And I pray that this would be a place where they have the freedom to sit in that garden and say, Father, would you take this cup from me? But even if you don't, we're going to wrestle. We're, we're going to sit in this together, and you're with me, and, and, and I know that you're good. And, and I pray that that would, that that would be a part of the community that you're building here, that we would know that we could come in the midst of our gardens and, and wrestle with the God whose goodness was shown at the cross, whose goodness is being poured out in the inbreaking kingdom and whose goodness will one day flood every inch of our reality. And when the cups don't pass, God, we lament together and we look forward to that day when every cup will pass and you will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will be restored in every dimension of our being to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen.